0: Reading this morning comes from Psalm one. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft that in the wind drives away, that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. So back in January, I discovered the Spotify app. And uh, this is one of those apps that you can listen to anything and everything other than Taylor Swift, which is okay by me. Um, it's in a... It's amazing, w- one of the features of Spotify are playlists. And so what it has is various playlists for really any circumstance. Let me just read you off a few of these. There's the uh, the Daily Lift, which is 20 perfect songs guaranteed to get you to work with a smile on your face. There's the uh, Confidence Boost. So if you're feeling down, you know, just plug that one in, need a little confidence. There's the Happy Hipster, uh, the tagline for that one is Some say there is no such thing as a happy hipster. We disagree. And, you know, of course the list goes on, right? There's so many different playlists for every circumstance. Well, around 3,500 years ago, there is a community that was forming that had been rescued, that had been called out to be a people for this creator God. And there was this playlist that was developing. There was a playlist that was developing that was designed to help teach those people the language of trusting, of praying, and praising this God. No one's quite sure when it was all completed, but perhaps around 2,300 years ago, a final edited version was put together, and this is what you have in the Bible, the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. Hence our title, the original playlist. And here's the deal. The, the book of Psalms, it, it's not about theory, about how to trust God. Like, hey, here's, here's a couple thoughts, here's a couple ideas, or here are five tips on how to pray to God. It, the Psalms are raw and gritty songs in the midst of the complexities And struggles of life designed to help teach us the language of praising, praying, and trusting this God. Let me mention one final thing before we get into the text. Not only does the book of Psalms teach us the language of trusting, praying, and praising but it assumes something about God. It assumes that God is not some kind of opium for the masses. It assumes that God is not kind of a a deistic thing that just kind of like got the world started and then kind of just kind of let things go. It assumes that whatever we are facing in life, whatever it is, God actually hears, God actually is there, God actually acts, and then perhaps most importantly, that God actually cares. So that's what this series is about this summer, that we would become a people who more deeply trust, more deeply understand prayer. more more deeply understand how in the midst of whatever we're facing, we can learn to trust and pray and praise this God. So let me pray and we will dive into this first track. So Father, you know, the doubts in this room, you know, the fears, you know, our anxieties, you know, perhaps even perhaps the numbness or perhaps even the apathy that we feel towards you this morning. Just pray over this morning and this summer, as we dive into this playlist, that you would help us to grow, to be people that would trust, that would pray, that would praise you in whatever we face. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So I want you to think for a moment, Uh, think of the last person that you were jealous of, that you were envious of, who is that? So um, when I was in high school, I was about five foot 10 and I weighed about 113 pounds, about 113. Like, if you think I'm a pole now, like, it was, you know, a toothpick then. And uh, I remember going uh, to the pool in the summertime. There were these three senior guys, and they're about my height, but their physique, their body was, like, just chiseled, you know? They had, like, just crazy packs. They had, like, crazy guns. Like, they did curls for girls all day, you know? <laughs> and, uh when you're like five 5'10", 113, and you see that, and they're like, they're with their, you know, like shirts off, like in the, th- I'm like, that's what I want. Now, I'll tell you this much. Um, I, I changed my, <laughs> I changed goals. I, I did different things throughout the years. And obviously, you can see I did not achieve it at all, right? <laughs> There's no doubt that I got nowhere close. Um, but I was thinking about things that I was envious of, like, man, I look at those guys, I'm like, I want to be like them. What's interesting is that Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. And that term blessed actually means to be envious of, to desire. This first track is setting before us a life that this psalmist wants us to be envious of. This is a good envy. And it sets before us two kinds of lives two ways to live and the blessed life is called the righteous they're called the righteous while the other kind of life is called the wicked and this psalm is a riff that's calling us to follow the path of the righteous and the psalmist does this by at least in 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 at least three ways He gives us two images, he gives us two destinies, and then he gives us the key to the blessed life. So two images, two destinies, and then he he gives us the key to the blessed life. So let's begin by looking at these images and um, metaphors. Uh, A metaphor is a figure of speech that associates or compares something that is unrelated for a rhetorical effect, and in verse 3 and 4, this is poetry. This is like creative writing, like senior year, right? This is, this is poetry. In verses 3 and 4, listen to how, these, to how the psalmist describes two different ways of living, two different realities of a person's life. In verse 3 it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water. This is speaking of the righteous. That yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers, Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff, that the wind drives away. The the, the psalmist gives us two pictures, two images of two kinds of lives. It says the righteous, they're like a tree. The wicked, they're like chaff. And, And if you know anything about chaff, chaff is the husk or the straw that's removed from the grain that would be separated from the actual edible Grain. In fact, in those days, what they would do is they'd take everything and they'd throw it up into the wind, and the wind would take away all of the chaff that need to be discarded, and all the thing with substance would drop, and that's what would be used. The psalmist is saying that of the two ways to live, one of them results; the wicked results in being like a piece. Of chaff that is blown away the o- the other image is that of the righteous person the tree and this tree is not blown around but it says that it's planted this tree is planted it has this foundation and not only is it planted but it's planted by something it's planted by streams of water it it has a source of life it has a place to go to get nutrients and this tree it says it it produces fruit in its season it it actually gives It blesses others. And not only does it have this fruit in season, but even when it's dry, even when the heat comes, even when the stresses of life hit in, it says that its leaf does not wither. the psalmist leaves uh, for a moment the metaphor in, at the end and says, in all that he does, the righteous he prospers. The psalmist is capturing our imagination and he's saying, which kind of life do you want? Do, do you want a life that is like a piece of chaff? Or do you want a life that's like an abundant tree that flourishes, has a source for life, that is has a foundation. But not only does the psalmist give us these two images, he, he gives us the two destinies of these paths. And look for a moment at verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says this, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish it says that one path leads to judgment that one path leads to actually perishing that's the path of the wicked well the other path the path of the righteous what what happens is the lord knows the way to know is not simply to be aware of where they are, but to know actually has a sense of affection and approval. One of the things that's just most striking about this psalm is that the psalm leaves no middle ground. You know what I'm saying? There's there's no middle ground. Like, it's an either-or. There's two ways to live. There's two images. There's two There's two destinies. There's not like a middle path. And the psalmist is doing this because he wants us to be envious of the blessed life. He wants us to know what's at stake. Now, let me say this, he doesn't leave us in kind of this fatalistic spot that, well, I guess where we are is where we are. He actually gives us the key. It's in verses one and two. So so listen for a moment what the key is. It says, blessed is the man who walks (coughs) not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. Let me suggest this. The key that, that makes a distinction between the blessed life and the other life comes down to one thing. One thing. Who you and I listen to. It comes down to one thing, who you and I listen to. Do you see the two sets of contrasting voices in those first two verses? One is the counsel of the wicked and the scoffers. The other is the law of the Lord. It comes down to what is going to influence your life. And we need to orient ourselves for a moment <coughs> around these two competing voices. What What is meant by the wicked and the scoffers? And, and what's meant by the law of the Lord? What's, what's going on here? If we're going to understand how to walk in the path of the blessed life. So <coughs> here's the deal. If you go, for example, in the book of Proverbs, and you would look at the wicked or the scoffers in the book of Proverbs, you would see that they are, in essence, individuals, who set themselves as the ultimate authority. Nothing trumps them. They are an authority to themselves. So, Robert Bella, in his book, uh, The Habits of the Heart, he's describing North American culture as a whole, and this is what he says. He describes it as a culture of expressive individualism. And what that in essence means is he says this, our culture is one that just says the self and the expression of self is what trumps all. We live in a culture where self decides what is right and wrong. There is nothing outside. And if you take for a moment, like the, 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 the book of Proverbs and what it says about the wicked, and you connect it to what Robert Bella is saying, suggesting is he's saying our culture is one that is swimming in a current of, it's saying itself as the self being the preeminent authority in life. So Andrew Del Blanco um, was writing a while ago and he talked about kind of our culture in North America and he, he talked about three big ideas that have kind of set our country in motion. And the first one is, when you look back at the roots of our country, it was actually kind of, a it, w- it was God. And then it transitioned to nation. This is really like, a, really like a, a patriotism. And then he writes that the last is self. And he writes this, that we no longer feel there exists something in the world that transcends ourselves. Now, let me, let me get to the baseline here, okay? So here's how it plays itself out, right? So parents, all right? If you have, well if your parents you got kids, so that's, you know, pretty obvious, right? So if you have got kids and you go, "Hey, what's the goal for your kids? What do you want for your kids?" You want them to be what? Happy, right? Isn't isn't that what most people would say? Is I want my kids to be happy. Okay? Hey, n- nothing wrong with happiness, right? If you go back 30 or 40 years ago, if you ask parents, "Hey, what do you want your kids to be? I think most would say, I want my kid to be good. <laughs> Healthy is good as well, right? But I want my kid to be good. Now, I, I want you to realize just the, the, the difference culturally what's happened here, okay? I'm not saying good or happy is necessarily bad in and of itself, but back 30, 40 years ago, the reason why we could say good is because there's kind of a, a view that, hey, there's something out there that actually tells us what's good, Something that kind of says, hey, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. This is kind of the predominant notion of our culture. Today, we say we want our kids to be happy. The reason why we say we want them to be happy, we say, hey, you make the call. You made the decision. What's going to make you happy? There, there's, there, there's nothing, again, it puts self above everything else. Again, I'm not saying happiness is a bad thing, but the question is, what are you going to be happy in? Let me suggest this, that we live in a culture in which, generally speaking, we are suspicious of anybody coming and speaking into our life and saying, hey, that's not right, that's wrong. We say things like, I I just don't feel convicted, or I don't feel that way. Or we say things like, hey, you deserve to be happy. Or as long as it doesn't hurt others, go for it. See, I'm, I'm suggesting this is that in Psalm 1, when it talks about the counsel of the wicked and the seat of the scoffers, I'm suggesting that, our culture is swimming in this. And I'm not saying that we have to get under a rock and hide or whatever else. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we live in a culture that exalts the self above all. And the blessed life takes its cue from someplace else. It says the law of the Lord. And I want to talk about two things. It talks about the attitude and the actions. And um, let me say this. Um, It says that he delights in the law of the Lord. Like, Okay, even as a pastor, that sounds weird, right? To think about enjoying someone coming and instructing me and telling me about my life, what is best. That seems weird, does it not? But that's where it begins, that someone who enjoys, longs for, and is excited about God's instruction, that that's actually the path to a blessed life. Now, l- let me pause for a moment here. This is really important because you have to get this. If if you don't hear anything this morning, this is the part you need to get, okay? So the trailhead to this path of delighting in God's law does not begin with obedience. It begins with God's grace. And, and this is important because right now, some of you are freaking out. You're going, oh my word, I better go home, read my Bible, pray, because if I don't, I'm doomed. That's what this text says. I better go get better, I I better become a better person. I need to love God's law and then if I do that, then he'll love me. But this community that was in the midst of this playlist for me to trust, pray, and praise this God, their story is completely the opposite. And and let me show you how. See, the law of the Lord, that last word, Lord, that's translated in English, Lord, is actually Underneath that is the, the name that God gave his people back in the book of Exodus. It's, it's Yahweh. And when you go back to the story in the book of Exodus, well, what's happening? Well, this people, they're enslaved in a nation. They're enslaved. They can't get out. They have no power, no control. And what does God do? He comes he raises up Moses. Moses comes and rescues God's people. Now listen to me. When did they receive, for example, the law of the Lord? Was it before or after that rescue? It was after. Think about like the Ten Commandments. It comes after they're rescued. God did not come to them and say, "This, hey, um, guys, uh, here's the. Deal. I got some commandments here. I got some instructions." I want you to do your best, and if you do good enough, then I'll come and rescue you. That's not how it worked. It's not how it worked. He came and rescued in the midst of the mess of their life, where they were. And then he brought them out to set them apart to be a people for himself. And therefore, he gives them this instruction for their good and for their blessing, and that they might actually obey it out of gratitude. Not to earn his love, but in response to it. And this is why it's so important, because the trailhead of delighting God's law, it begins with grace. And we know this is the deal. The, The story continues, does it not? Because God doesn't just send Moses for one time at one time. He sends actually another man. Jesus. And what does he do? He comes to rescue us from our sin through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death on the cross and through the resurrection. He comes to call out a people for himself. And see, that changes things. Grace radically changes things. Our motive for delighting in God's law does not begin with trying to obey to earn his approval, but rather it's a response to the love and the mercy that he's shown through his son Jesus. The trailhead begins with receiving God's love in Jesus. That's where it begins. Um, Imagine for a moment in the mail, you receive two letters and both contain instructions. One is from your boss. The other is from your spouse. I don't know which one's worse, right? No. (laughs) The first one is from your boss and in the letter are instructions on what is expected and how you will be evaluated. The other is from your spouse. And they are a list of things that will please him or her, that will help you maintain a deep, loving, faithful, abiding relationship with them. See, some of you, you you view God's law or God's word and you view it like he's a boss. But if you understand grace, what is he? He's this God who has pursued us with a love that gives us his his own son that calls us to be himself that actually calls us to be a people that respond to that love and that grace sometimes um i I think even like the earlier part of this message i'm sure some of you are just like you, you think like hey you know god's up in heaven and his arms are crossed and he's looking down in disappointment at you or at your performance or at your life. You think, oh, I just got to measure up. But do you not understand that the greatest self-revelation of God is not not God with his arms crossed like this, but it's his arms open wide. Laying down his life for you. Paying for all the ways that you've wronged him. That actually, you and I have set ourselves above his authority. And once you understand that that's, that's the trailhead, like that flips things. That changes things. And I would just say this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Like it, it begins right here. It begins understanding understand that you need to receive God's rescuing love in Jesus. That that's the beginning of that relationship. just so ask you, have you done this? And you put your trust in him this morning, that he loves you. Now, this isn't where it ends for the blessed person. It says that not only does he delight, but he actually meditates on the law. Now what, is, what does that mean? Well, um, like uh, sometimes I'll do like P90 yoga, not a lot, but you know, like, and I'll get there and like clear your mind of everything. and that's honestly what a lot of people think is meditation, and it is in the Eastern sense, but meditation biblically scripturally is actually not to, like, you know, like, clear your mind. It's actually to fill your mind. It's actually to fill your mind with his word. It means to continually set your mind upon scripture. You know, perhaps one of the most vivid illustrations of this, of what it means to meditate, is of of how a cow digests its food. I don't know if you know this or not, but um, a cow, like, obviously, you know, hops down, hops, whatever, you know, grabs his... uh, grabs his grass or whatever else, chews it, and then swallows it. And what's interesting is that a cow actually has four different parts of its stomach. I thought it was four stomachs. Wikipedia just told me last time I'm wrong. But anyway, so here's the deal. Four parts of its stomach. It goes to the first stomach, and then you know what the cow does? It regurgitates it back up. Isn't that gross? And chews it some more, to digest it some more, and then Swallows it back down and, and vice versa. So that's kind of how it does it. Now, that's a really awesome image. I'm sure you're all excited to go to brunch afterwards, right? But, but the point of that is this. is, is that, That's a great picture of actually what it means to meditate upon God's word. That we, we, we read it or we hear it or we listen to it. And then we think upon it. And then, you know, we, we got our things to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you got to pay the bills. You got other things to do. But then at different moments, you're able to call it back to mind. To to think upon it some more. Um, And this takes practice. Um, uh, One great example of this, and and I love this example, back in like 1535, uh, there's a guy named Peter Beskendorf, and he was a barber. Okay, any petitions out there? Okay, this guy was a barber, and one of his friends was Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. And this barber was asking Luther, "How do I pray?" And Martin Luther wrote this open letter, and it, it was titled this: "How one should pray for Master Peter the Barber." And it was public because he just he wanted everybody to know, "Hey, this is how you can do it." I love that; it's such a great picture. And this is he he gave them um, he, he he gave them like three things to think upon. W- one is when you read, reflect upon. What our Lord God so earnestly requires of me. Secondly he says, I make out of it a reason for thanksgiving, and thirdly, a confession, and fourthly, a prayer. And so, like, here's an example of what he he took him to um, one of the commandments that talked about not coveting your neighbor's property. And this is what Luther did for an example. He said, First I learn here that I shall not take my neighbor's property, nor possess it against his will, neither secretly or nor openly that I should not be unfaithful or false in my bargaining, but I shall earn my food with the sweat of my brow and shall eat my own bread with all those who are faithful. At the same time, I shall help my neighbor so that his property is not taken away from him through such actions as mentioned above. And then he talks about, Secondly, I thank God for his faithfulness and goodness and that he has given me and all the world such a good teaching and through it protection and shelter. For unless he protects us, not one penny nor one bite of bread would remain in the, hou- in, in, in the house. It's just one example of him going through this one thing. I'll, I'll, I'll post a few things on our Facebook page today of some other questions you could ask. There's not, put it this way, th- there's not a one-size-fits-all in this, but I want to encourage you to think about how you can grow in this area. And let me say a couple things. Like, as a family, as we're working this out, like, uh, we want to be people that just help each other. So on the one hand, like some of you are new in your, in your following Jesus, and we would just say, hey, step into a relationship, perhaps someone in your city group or someone you know here that's walked a little bit further, that perhaps has got this sort of um, discipline of being in God's word and delighting in it a little bit more, and just say, hey, would you help me? You know what's really funny is I, I was reflecting on this in my own life, and there's like multiple different people who helped me when I was specifically in college doing this. When I was like a teenager, I didn't want anything to do with it, okay? So obviously, anyway, so here's the deal. When I was in college, um, uh, the gal that actually mentored my wife, we had this large group meeting, and uh, she would say, hey, Nate, tell you what, why don't you meet me here? I want you to um, bring like a verse to memorize each week, and I'll ask you about it. It was so funny. It's like this 41-year-old woman who's mentoring my wife who I would meet before this large group meeting and I'd be like, all right, here's my verse, Tracy. <laughs> and, but that, that was one way in which this person, among many, were helping me to delight in God's word. So what does it mean for you to grow in this? So let me just wrap it up this way. Um, the embodiment The embodiment of this psalm is Jesus. You know, he's the one, you know what he did? If you read the Gospel of Luke, for example, he gets away early in the morning to spend time with his father. To know his father. Um, There's a time where he's tempted by Satan himself. And what does he do? Each time he's tempted, what does he come back with? He comes back with Scripture. Not only that, but think about when he's on the cross, the most excruciating, painful moment of his life. What comes out of him? It's Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It, it's almost like if you—I've heard it said—like if you prick Jesus, he just, just what, what comes out is just scripture. And think about that for a moment. We, we talk about how in Psalm one, what happens? The blessed life is one where God, where, where God says, "Hey, you're, you're not going to perish." you're not going to come under judgment. But that's not, right? That's not what happened for Jesus. He was the one who did it perfectly, and guess what happened? It all fell on him, on the cross. And it wasn't because of him, right? He was there for us. So we might enter into a relationship with this God and not come under the curse of this law and come under this, oh, I just can't measure up, but actually come into a relationship by grace and in response to that, begin to learn to delight and lead a life where God knows us, approves of us, and is for us. Let's pray. So, Father, we want to be... um, a community that honestly um, is like a tree. And I think right now of um, the various stories of those who are here and not here right now, who are walking in the midst of dry times. Maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's in relationship to you, maybe it's in work. Would you help us in the midst of that to go to the source of life. Father, I think about um, uh, those in this room or perhaps not here who are in the midst of life. They're, they're, it's a fruitful season. There's some great things happening. God, we're just grateful for your word that enables us to walk in trust and praise and prayer to you. I think right now of, of even those here and perhaps not here in the midst of our community who perhaps are just struggling. Just pray, Father, in the midst of that, that your word would give life, that we would gladly come under it and trust. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.